0: were men and women who were being tempted to abandon Christ and return to Judaism. They were under the threat of persecution and they really were saying to themselves, what's the point of keeping on? What's the point of uh, seeking to adhere to the new Christian religion? Our old religion is one that we're used to. It is one that we have followed for years and there were many that were tempted to go back to the old religion of Judaism. And the book of Hebrews is an antidote to that kind of going back. We are told how that uh, the Lord Jesus is superior to the angel in chapters 1 and 2. He's superior to Moses in chapters 3 and into chapter 4. He's superior to Aaron in chapter 4 verses 14 uh, to uh, the uh, following chapter into chapter 7 and he's a superior priesthood in chapter 8 to chapter 10. And here he has a superior covenant and he is the mediator of a superior covenant. And throughout the book of Hebrews we have an emphasis upon that which is better. Thank God for the better covenant, for the better blessings that he has given us. Look at verse 6 of chapter 8 he says but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant in Hebrews chapter 7 verses 18 and 19 we are told that he uh, when the former commandment is set aside there is the bringing in of a better hope in verse 22 the Lord Jesus is described as the surety Of a better testament. And we think of how God. Has ordered his plans. By covenant. By the covenant of grace. And we think of that great covenant. That God in his plans in eternity. Has set into place. And we rejoice. But that doesn't mean that there are not a variety of covenants under the main covenant of grace. It is unfolded through a variety of covenants to Abram, to Moses, to David, and finally to the Lord Jesus Christ. Though there is one covenant of grace, there are many sub-covenants. And we go down to chapter 8 and we have the mention of the better promises... ...and the replacing of a covenant that waxeth old and is ready to vanish away. And here in Hebrews chapter 8 we're told something of the fact that there is a better covenant that is to come. The old covenant is thought of in terms of the Mosaic covenant. But here is a better covenant. And the original audience here, they would have known that there was a new covenant. They would have known from the Old Testament scriptures... Even back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 1 to 6. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34. God promises a better covenant, a new covenant. And here the portion in Jeremiah is quoted for us so that we know that this is the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke upon. And what a blessing it is that we're under the new covenant today. And we thank God for the better covenant that God has given. But I want us to look at this better covenant for a few minutes tonight. And there are a number of things about the new covenant... I I didn't realize how uh, many uh, theologically thorny problems I was getting into when I took the subject on. But nevertheless, we're hoping that God will give grace and we're coming to God's word and we want to see what God's word has to say. Now look at the parties of the new covenant. Now who are the parties? Well, the Lord Jesus is one of the parties. Certainly he is. Because in Jeremiah chapter 31 it says, For this is the covenant that I will make. But who is it addressed to? Now here we have one of these thorny theological problems. If you think it is thorny, because if you look at what the Bible has to say and take it for what it means, eh, you don't have that problem. Look at what it says. Look at verse 10. And here the writer quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. And he says, for this is the covenant of that I make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. So there it is clear. What, What does it say? This is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and the primary reference of course is to the house of Judah to the house of Israel it is to ethnic Israel that's what it is Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31 says behold the days come saith the Lord that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah so there's a reference to the Jews there has to be a reference if we take the Bible to mean what it says, and we always do, if um, unless there's a clear reason for us not to do it, then we do. But here is the passage that indicates that God has a purpose for his ancient people. Of course, that agrees with what the Word of God has to say. It says well, we'll turn back to turn back to Isaiah chapter 61. <laughs> And look at what it says in verses 8 and 9. Isaiah chapter 61. And look at verses 8 and uh, 9. It says, "For For I, the Lord, love judgment, I hate robbery, for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, And their offspring among the people, all that see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. So this verse describes a covenant, an everlasting covenant. And it is designed, we can see it here, that it is designed for the seed of Israel. And the context is the same as the context in Jeremiah. How that the covenant would be fulfilled through trial, through judgment, and preceded by the regathering of Israel. And Jeremiah repeats it in Jeremiah 32 and verses 37 to 40 speaks about the everlasting character of this uh, covenant in, in, in relation to Israel's regathering. And he says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them, and of their children, After them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. And if we take... The context again to be what it says we see here that it is in a reference to Israel. Now this is clearly in an eschatological context. Turn over to Romans chapter eleven and look at I guess, Romans chapter eleven and look at what it says in verses twenty six and twenty seven. And he says. And so all Israel shall be saved. As is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer. And they shall turn away from ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them. When I shall take away their sins. So when does this um, application of the covenant to Israel take place? Well you can see it in the context there. When there comes. To Zion the Deliverer. And when Israel will be saved. Is when they turn away from. our ungodliness from Jacob. And he says that. He will take away their sins. And that's when it takes place. When will Israel be saved? When will all Israel be saved? According to the promise here. This covenant promise. It will be completed. At the Lord's second Advent, when the Lord Jesus comes again, and then you notice in verse um, 27, you'll notice there there is a quotation from either Isaiah 59 verse 21 or perhaps Isaiah 27 verse 9. But regardless, I want you to see that Paul is saying that the new co- co- uh, covenant will be um, will have its consummation really. In the conversion of Israel. T- turn with me to Ezekiel. And to chapter 37. And turn with it, to, please. to me Because I'm going to read a, a quite a lengthy passage of it. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. And look at um, verses 21 to 28. It says in verse 21 of Ezekiel 37. And say unto them. Thus saith the Lord God. Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and I will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land unto the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be a king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so that they be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be a king over them, and they uh, they all shall have one shepherd, they shall walk in my judgments. And observe my statutes to do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant. Wherein our fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell there. then even they and their children and their children's children forever and my servant David shall be their prince forever moreover I will make a covenant of peace with them and I it shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore so you can see there how it speaks of this covenant and again It speaks of it. And you notice some of the things that are going to be true when this is fulfilled. Notice that Israel will be regathered. Notice too that that Israel will be one nation. They will not be divided. They will be ruled by one king. And notice... That they will be no longer idolatrous, they'll be cleansed from their idolatry and they'll be forgiven. And then you notice that there is a covenant of peace, a never lasting covenant. And then it says that God's tabernacle is with them. He will be present in a visible way. And all of the promises there are basic to the passage of Jeremiah. There, but they form and they enrich the covenant here that the Lord has made. So we can see from the scriptures that Israel certainly has a part in this new covenant. And this is a covenant with them and it will be finally fulfilled when the Lord Jesus comes again and all Israel will be saved however the Bible also makes it clear that the New Testament church is a part of the new covenant we have only to look in terms of the Lord's supper the Lord instituted in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20 he says likewise also the cup also the cup after the supper saying this cup is the New Testament or the New Covenant in my blood, which he's shed for you. And I want you to see that when the Lord Jesus inaugurated the New Covenant, he did it by the shedding of his blood on the cross of Calvary. And the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 26 and 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament or the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then the Apostle Paul is called the Apostle of the Gentiles. And he's a minister of the New Covenant in Second Corinthians 3 and 6. Who also have made us able ministers of the New Testament or the New Covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. So there's obviously a place for the church too. It's clear that the uh, provisions of the New Covenant are implemented when the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, shed on the cross of Calvary, when he ascends up into the heavenly sanctuary and there presents his own precious blood. And we come today by faith. How do we reconcile? Well, I think really the reconciliation is found in Romans chapter 11. Because we consider Romans chapter 11... And we notice that Paul makes it clear that there is a future for ethnic Israel. There is a future for Israel. Israel has a bright future, and Israel will be saved. They'll be engrafted. The natural branch will be engrafted into the olive tree afresh, and the Gentiles are the wild olive branch that has grafted it. But it is one tree. There's not two trees. There's not two peoples. There is one people. But they are separate. There is the natural branch. There's the wild olive branch. There are two peoples. They can be identified. They can be seen as being different. So there is the the two that are there. And God has brought us into one covenant. When Israel is saved, they'll be saved by the same saviour. They will be saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will be brought the same way as we come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. And thank God today for that mercy that he has given us. But not only do I want you to see the parties of the new covenant. But I want you to see the provisions of the new covenant. Look at Hebrews chapter 8 and look at verse 6, please. The book of Hebrews, chapter 8, and look at verse 6. He says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And I want you to see here that he speaks about the better promises. And then in verses 8 and 9, he goes on to quote from the prophecy of Jeremiah. And he says, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the day is come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regard them not, saith the Lord. And I want you to see the provisions of the new covenant are of astonishing grace. Folks, thank God today that we are able to be under the provisions. Look at verse 10, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And he goes on to describe it. And the first thing that he says, he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts. These are not just laws that are going to be on tables of stone now. These laws are going to be written on our hearts. And the Lord is telling the people here that he's going to give them a knowledge of his laws. He's going to make them constantly mindful of his laws. And he's speaking here of a great change that takes place in the heart. He's speaking of a new disposition. He's speaking of a new power. This is not salvation based on legalistic rules. But this is something that comes from the heart. New creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ have a new birth. And the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within our hearts. And he gives us new desires. And we have a new desire after his word. When it says that I put my laws in their mind. It doesn't mean that we're going to be able to recite the Bible from beginning to end. It would be good if we could. So there have been those that have been able to do it. But that doesn't what it means. It means that we're open to God's law. We have a readiness to obey God's law. And God's law has, uh, God has given us that inclination after the things of God. And it's good when we have that inclination within us to obey him. He has put those laws within our hearts. And then the second provision, he says, I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now this is the great covenant formula. And we might just look at the words and say, well, that just speaks about God's relationship with the people. And it does, but it speaks about far more. It speaks about God's dealings with them. It speaks about how he reveals himself in glory. How he comes with wisdom and power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. And he makes known his infinite care to us. He's a God who cares for us. He looks down upon you and me and he knows us by name and he knows our needs. He'll be to us our God and we will be his people. And we're made ours of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And then the third provision is mentioned in verse 11. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor. And every man his brother say know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. So there's the evangelical imperative. To go out into the world. And to preach the gospel. To broadcast the word of God. And that's to be done by every member of the church of God. And he says all shall know me from the least to the To the greatest. That is a reference to Israel there. And uh, the primary reference actually is to Israel in all of these things. They shall know me from the least to the greatest. But we thank God for those that are saved. In Romans chapter 11 verses 26 and 27 it says, And so all Israel shall be saved. As is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, And shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them. Then I shall take away their sins. There will be that day. When there won't be one Israelite. Without that knowledge. And thank God for that blessing. And then look at the next provision. He says in verse 12. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins. And their iniquities. Will I remember no more. Here we are on the grounds of God's mercy and he speaks here of mercy deliverance from guilt and god says that their sins will be no remembered no more that means that god pardons he pardons the iniquities of israel he he has mercy upon his people and that mercy uh, applies to gentiles and to jews all who come to him by faith thank god we're depending upon that offering that great sacrifice our Lord Jesus made there upon the center cross of Calvary. Thank God for the provisions of the new covenant. But then I want you to think about the planning of the new covenant. Look at verses 8 and 9 of this chapter. It says here, For if that first covenant had been faultless, Then should no place have been sought for the second, for finding fault with him, he saith, Behold, the day has come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. And there are those that have looked at that portion of scripture and they've thought to themselves, Well, did God then make a mistake in the old covenant? Was God forced to abandon the old covenant? Was it that God had a plan and he had to abandon the plan and take on a plan B, an emergency plan, as it was? Well, the answer to that, of course, is no. God knows the end from the beginning. He's the sovereign God, and God has inaugurated his new covenant. You can see that he's quoting here from Jeremiah. He has already said way back in the Old Testament that there would be a new covenant. And uh, these were Jews here, and they're suffering severe persecution. And they're tempted to go back to the old ways and to the old ceremonies. And the uh, apostle here, he said, no, no, this is a better covenant. This is the covenant that God has promised, the new one. But I want you to see the way he prefaces when he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31 here. Look at verse 7, he says, if that first covenant had been faultless... Then should no place have been sought for the second. Now, what he's saying there is the very fact that the Old Testament promises a new covenant means that the Old Testament foresaw that that old covenant was going to pass away. It's not going to be permanent. It can't be permanent if there's going to be a new one. And the author to the Hebrews makes that point more clearly in verse 13. It says in in that he saith a new covenant. He hath made the first old. So when Jeremiah promises a new covenant. He emphatically implies that the first covenant administration. Is old and temporary. In other words it's always been part of God's plan. To bring in the new covenant. It's not a plan B. It's not an afterthought in any way. And we think of this Plan that God has entered into. But that thought there, that God has planned this to inaugurate that, brings us into another thorny theological promise about the continuity and the discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You see, there are different people of different views about that, and there are those that say, well, there is no continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And they, say, they, they treat the Old Testament almost as, you know, it's just completely replaced. And we, it's not really relevant for Christians today. And you have many Christians that come and say, oh, that's Old Testament. You just dismiss it because it's Old Testament. No relevance whatsoever, they think. But then there are others in the history of the church. And they have said, well, there's little discontinuity between the covenants. And they the the, the, uh, the the changes made in the inauguration, and for some of those they have said, well, we should keep the Sabbath on the the Saturday on the seventh day, and we should have all the feasts that the Old Testament had. So we we avoid both extremes, but we read the passages of Scripture that are found here in uh, Hebrews eight and seven and nine and thirteen, and. We uh, conclude that, if you were to conclude that there is no continuity between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant, then I think your conclusion would be premature. Because one of the most obvious points here is, I think, that there is a relationship between them. Look, look at what he says in Jeremiah here, or what he quotes from Jeremiah in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8 to 12. Look at verse 10. He says, For this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. So where is the point of continuity? My laws. My laws. God is not writing the laws on tablets of stone. He writes them upon the, t- the fleshly tables of the heart. But they are still my laws. My laws. They are the moral law. Not There are the ceremonial laws that are passed. Don't they? But there are the laws that stand. You can think of it another way. You think of what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. He says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The Hebrew there is pedagogus. And it just means they're a slave who had the job of um, training the young, the young, the master's young son. Now, you think about that situation. Here's the slave or the teacher, the teacher who's training the young child. Now the, child, the young child grows and he comes to the point where he's not going to be under the tutor anymore. But what hopefully happens is that that young child has been trained in the laws, if you, say, if you put it like that, or in the standards that the um, teacher has given him. He he will continue on in those things. He's not under under the schoolmaster anymore. But if he's been trained well, he still keeps the laws. He still keeps the law. And thank God we have been brought out of childhood. And we brought into adulthood. But the laws of God are still standing. I'm not talking about ceremonial laws and the high, the priests and the uh, sacrifices and so on and so forth. But certainly the Ten Commandments, those still stand. God's moral law still stands today. So, we see something of the planning of the New Covenant. But then I want you to see the perfection of the New Covenant. Now, in order to show you the perfection of the new covenant, I want you just to see a couple of things. First of all, look at the fault in the old covenant. He says here in verse 7 and 8, For if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion sought for a second for finding fault with them he said behold the day has come saith the Lord that when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah now notice carefully where the fault lies it's not in the covenant verse 7 says that the first covenant was not faultless but then in verse 8 he explains for finding fault in them not in it not in the covenant. Where is the fault? In them. In the people. It was the people. That had come short. He's finding fault in them. And he says, and now he quotes Jeremiah 31 and 31, uh, the prophecy of the new covenant. For finding fault in, in with them, he said, Behold, the day has come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regard them not saith the Lord. So here we can see that the old covenant is made with the people of God with Israel here and when they came out of Egypt of course and so on and the the, uh, faultiness is not with the covenant that God made the Mosaic covenant. It's with the hearts of the people. And you can look at it in two ways. There were two ways. On the human side, you can look at it. On God's side, you can look. The human side, the problem was their unbelief. Their hard-heartedness. From God's side, you would say that the problem was that God withheld his covenant or sovereign enablement of his spirit and we listen to Deuteronomy 29 and 4 and Moses is speaking and he looks back of 40 years of rebellion in the wilderness and he says yet the Lord hath not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear unto this day the ultimate reason of course why the old covenant is inadequate is that God is teaching the children of Israel lessons and uh, the, he, the, he's teaching them through generations of stubbornness that they've got to rely on him they've got to come to him So the fault is not with the covenant. The fault is with the people. But then I want you to see the flawlessness of the new covenant. Now he comes and he speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. And there's the scripture in, in verses 10 and 11. And he says three things that we've really pointed out before. So we'll just go. He says that the will of God is going to be written on their hearts. Not in Bible, paper or stone tablets. But in their hearts. Second, the new covenant will uh, establish the relationship or the ownership of God. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And thirdly, that this will be an intimate and a personal covenant. And then he says, and all shall know me from the least to the greatest. So here... Is a covenant that is not to do with ritualism or externalism. It is to do, he's replacing the shadows with the reality. And he comes now and he gives us this blessing of having the law of God written in our hearts and that intimate communion that we have with our God and that blessing of knowing him. And dear, Folks, tonight, what a wonderful thing it is that God has done for us. We little realise the greatness of the blessings that we have. One of in our brethren, in the week of prayer down in Lewis this week, yesterday evening, was speaking about Jonah. And uh, Jonah, you know, when he um, was annoyed about Nineveh being converted and so on. And he, he prays to God. But his prayer is without love. And he prays to God in in the midst of all this. And he um, sort of chides with God. And he, he, he comes without thankfulness. And sometimes we can pray without thankfulness. How great is the God we adore. Our faithful, unchangeable friend. His love is as great as his power, and he knows neither measure nor end. Oh, I'm glad today that we have a blessed Redeemer. And the best thing is that we have the mediator of the new covenant working for us. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, it says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work, to do as well, working with you, that which is well-pleasing, in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, in that passage, the words that I want you to see, working in you, that which is well-pleasing. God is working in us, that which is well-pleasing. God is changing us. He writes his word upon our hearts. And by that word he changes us day by day. He seals the child of God. And he places us into his blessed will. Something else I want you to see tonight. And that's the prerequisite for the covenant. The prerequisite of course is the mediator. Who is this covenant centred on? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the centre of it all. Where do we get reconciliation? In the Lord Jesus Christ. He is actually um, called, he he is um, himself, as it were, a covenant. Um, We think of how um, that covenant is wrought out personally in him. We We have reconciliation between human and God and it's, Perfectly effected in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also here he's called the messenger of the covenant. Because he came to establish it and proclaim it. He's called the surety of the covenant. Because he comes, he paid the price of our sins. And he comes to fulfill his part. And because he fulfills his part, thank God for the surety we rest in him. And then he is, of course, the mediator of the covenant. He has wrought that covenant by the shedding of his own precious blood. He is the one who is our great high priest. He is the one who came to bring the offering. But he also is the offering itself. There he died on the center cross of Calvary and shed his precious blood. And at the last Uh, supper the Lord in the Gospels uh, uh, explained his sacrificial death that it had significance in two levels yes it is the atoning sacrifice that that he suffered uh, for the wrath of God but it also is a covenant initiating sacrifice his blood initiated the new covenant and it speaks of that in Matthew and Luke very clearly so this death this sacrifice is the prerequisite. And we need that. We have an omnipotent Saviour. And thank God we come by faith in Him tonight. I hope that each one of you, I trust that you are, you have that faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is Jeremiah. And he looked for the fulfillment of this. And of course, he didn't see it in his day. But we think of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And 49 days later, the Holy Spirit came to indwell his people on the day of Pentecost. And thank God for the one who is the mediator of the new covenant. Hebrews 12 verse 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of evils. In Hebrews 9 and 15 it says, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. But one more thing that I want you to see, and that's the profundity of the New Covenant. You see, the new covenant reaches into the heart. The new covenant reaches into the heart. It's not outward. It's inward. Hebrews 8 verse 10 says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them into their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be be to me a people. It reminds us what the psalmist said in Psalm twenty. Or five, verse fourteen, he said, "The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant." The verse shows that we enjoy the privilege of deep relationship with him, that close walk with our Saviour. Do we treasure the moments that we have with him? Do we? covet those times when we're able to enter into his presence and hold communion with our God and to know his sweetness sometimes you know the Lord is like the church at Laodicea and of course these words were written to Christians in the book of Revelation chapter 3 and 20 behold I stand at the door and knock the Lord's at the door knocking if any man open the door I will come into him and will sup with him And he with me. In the new covenant, we ought to enjoy the closest of relationships with our God. We have mighty blessings tonight. We have a wonderful saviour. And we have a mighty salvation. Oh, may we rejoice in that this evening. And may we rejoice in God's covenant mercy. To our souls. Let's just unite together please. At the throne of grace and prayer.